Biden stakes his claim, Trump continues to blame, and oh, are Rudy's arguments lame or insane? This week, we're glad you came to the political junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 354 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. There are 78 days between the presidential election and the inauguration, and so far they are proving to be the longest 78 days in modern history. While COVID deaths and infections are rising, Donald Trump has spent the time not comforting citizens or being president, but denying the election results. Last weekend, while ostensibly campaigning for Georgia Senate runoff candidates David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, Trump's rally was, to little surprise, mostly about Trump. I got more votes than any sitting president in history, 11 million more votes than we got in 2016. And we thought that if we could get 68 million, 67 million, that would be the end. All of our great, brilliant geniuses said, Uh, You'd win if you get 67 or 68, it's over. We got 74 million plus, and they're trying to convince us that we lost. We didn't lose. President Trump won, as we said, both in Florida and in Ohio. And And by the way, won by a lot. Remember, you know, remember, remember the fake polls where they said he's down by four in Florida and won by a lot. He's down by two in Ohio, and we won. I think we got eight or nine or something. How about Pennsylvania, where they throw the poll watchers out? They threw them out. They literally threw them out. And they did it here, too, by the way. But we caught them cold and have numerous cases pending, and so far we haven't been able to find the people with the courage to do the right thing, and that is true in Georgia, certainly. All I can do is say, I'm running win and then do a good job as president. That's all. I don't run the elections. I don't run to see if people are walking in with suitcases and putting them under a table with a black robe around it. I don't do that. That's up to your government here. And for whatever reason, your secretary of state and your governor are afraid of Stacey Abrams. They're afraid of her. If it was just about rallies and him going on and on about rigged elections with no proof, That would be one thing. We could roll our eyes as befits the moment. But with his legal challenges failing around the country, both in state and federal court, Trump has taken to personally calling legislators and lawmakers to change the results. First, he brought Republican lawmakers from Michigan to the White House to try and convince them to halt the certification of the results that showed Joe Biden winning. He failed. Then he called Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to get him to pressure the legislature to overturn Biden's victory in the state. Kemp wouldn't budge. And now we learn Trump called the Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives twice to do the same thing. It's one thing to hold rallies and whine, and it's one thing to bring legal cases but get laughed out of court because they were baseless. But by calling Republican lawmakers to persuade them to change the election results, That is crossing a line. 
into what? Authoritarianism? That went way beyond what Russia tried to do in 2016. And nary a word from the GOP. Their silence is alarming, though not surprising. Even more ominous, those few officials who dare to defy the president have been getting death threats. Low-ranking election workers tasked with simply counting the votes have been terrorized with phone calls and emails suggesting violence and worse. This press conference by Gabriel Sterling, a Georgia election official and a Republican, said it all. I'm going to do my best to keep it together because it has all gone too far. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy, and all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. And the silence by congressional Republicans to the fraud claims made by Trump has been deafening. The Washington Post recently surveyed every GOP member of the House and Senate, all 249 of them, and found that only 27 would acknowledge that Biden won the election. Everyone else ducked the question. Meanwhile, there's no indication that Biden himself is the least bit concerned about Trump's actions and rhetoric. He's been busy assembling a cabinet and, when the Trump people allow it, trying to be briefed by the administration. One surprise pick has been the naming of California State Attorney General Javier Becerra to be the next HHS secretary. If anything, Becerra was thought to be in line for attorney general, given his current position. Regardless, his moving to Washington gives California Governor Gavin Newsom a tremendous gift. Newsom is going to have to name a successor to Senator Kamala Harris, the soon-to-be vice president, and the guess is that he would name a Hispanic, who would become the state's first Hispanic senator ever. Both Becerra and Secretary of State Alex Padilla allegedly topped that list. I've always thought that the pick would be Padilla, who is very close to the governor. But no matter whom Newsom chose, it was bound to ruffle feathers of many of California's impatient politicians who wanted the job. Becerra joining the Biden cabinet is a big boost for Newsom. First, he can now pick Padilla to replace Senator Harris. He can pick someone to succeed Padilla as Secretary of State. And he can now pick someone to succeed A.G. Becerra. That will give the Gov three opportunities to make people happy. And who knows? Should Dianne Feinstein, at 87, the Senate's oldest member, decide to call it quits one day soon, she's already stepped down under pressure as the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, it would give Newsom a fourth appointment to make, an embarrassment of riches for the governor of the Golden State. And wait, there's more. It also leads to this week's trivia question. 
Who is the longest-serving Hispanic in the current Congress? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll reveal the answer and winner of the last trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. All the leaves are brown, all the leaves are brown, and the sky is gray, and the sky is gray. I came in for a while, on a winter's day, on a winter's day. I'd be safe and warm, I'd be safe and warm, if I was in L.A., if I was in L.A., California, California, dreaming on such a There are a few people other than Lou Dobbs, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and those getting signals from their dental fillings who think Donald Trump is going to prevail in his battle to overturn the election results. Come December 14th, the Electoral College will make it official. Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. That leaves the question of what's next for a post-Trump GOP. Or will Trump be out of the picture? I decided to check in with someone I haven't spoken to in a long time. Hal Daub is a former Republican congressman from Nebraska and mayor of Omaha. We actually met at the 1980 GOP convention in Detroit, months before he first won his House seat. Daub has been out of office for quite some time, but he knows his politics. He is and remains a strong Trump supporter. And I should add he's recovering from the COVID virus. I figure we're better to renew the friendship than on the political junkie. Congressman, it's, it's great to hear your voice again. You know, you know Ken, that, that was 11 conventions ago. Well, it, wasn't it yesterday? <laughs> My goodness, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> well, let me ask you the first, the first obvious question. How are you feeling? Well, I've recovered very well in terms of my energy level and my uh, uh, being back up to full speed. But I have not yet reacquired my senses of taste or smell or my voice back yet in full. It's still scratchy. I feel feel just fine. But it's no fun. It's a nasty business, let me tell you. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, there's there's debates going on throughout the country about how each state is handling the virus and... um, and let me just go in to talk about Nebraska's Governor Ricketts. He said that he encourages people to wear masks, but he won't mandate it. Are you, is, are you, is, are you fine with that position? Yes, I think uh, philosophically we can have the debate. And I appreciate the imprimatur of the mask being used in two ways. First, as a public health tool, some, some argue. Uh, others, the symbolism of being respectful of everyone else in terms of the contagion, the virus. I got it, having worn a mask and double mask since February. And uh, my doctor said you could be on the moon wrapped in plastic and you could still get it because it's a virus. And, and I don't have a clue about how I picked it up. So I think that in Nebraska, in the Midwest, with its conservative view of government and um, intrusion into the business and personal and family lives of people, the governor's taken a balanced position. He wants people to wear the masks. He encourages it. We have a lot of other directives in place that are quite uh, 
steep and strong and, and uh, uh, our mandates, if you will, like restaurants and uh, uh, bars and other places. But I think by and large, uh, the, the uh, passage of time is going to resolve a lot of these issues. Well, then, then let me switch to a more political question, and this would be basically about how President Trump has handled the virus. And the reason I ask you this is, first of all, I know you were quoted as saying the Democrats were trying to make political hay out of it, using it as a scare tactic. But there are many who feel that by minimizing the seriousness of it, you know, comparing it to the flu, saying we've turned the corner, dismissing the use of masks for the longest time, he held scores of campaign rallies, including one in Omaha, where most people were maskless. The argument is that Trump contributed to the deaths of many Americans who followed his lead. Now, I know that is a serious charge. I want to know what you think of it. Well, I, I think it's an outrageous charge. Just as a president uh, gets Congress to vote us to go into war, then we're going to blame the president for killing people. Uh, that's the typical a way in which when you don't have the facts, you turn to the emotion of the appeal. The president certainly could have handled this differently, but that's like the Monday morning quarterback that always always has a better idea and a way of saying you could have done it differently. You know, when you're not there on the spot having to make the decisions, it's pretty easy for somebody else to throw a bucket of cold water on it. So from my point of view, I have a middle ground. And my, my middle ground is, but I think that the criticism was overblown. I think the hyping of the public health danger was overblown relative to the damage that's just as bad relative to people, their lives, their livelihoods, their families, their workplaces. And that could be far lasting in terms of damage. And the president's approach to it could have been a little less cavalier. Well, I think I think the last thing you just said is what, what hits me the most because Forget about what he did and didn't do about China and everything in January and February and March, but even as late as the summer, June, July, August, he was dismissing the use of masks, even while Dr. Fauci was saying that masks are so critical. And he would say it's just a flu, and he would have these rallies. I mean, I think of poor Herman Cain, but there were a lot of rallies where you see these people sitting without masks. You saw that Amy Coney Barrett, you know, ceremony in the White House. You see, I, I think, Ken, what that is, is that's picking on selectively this person or that person at this event or that event that was with or without a mask. And I think that's what skews the public's thinking about the public health danger. It makes too much of the being without a mask. We have people who are uh, literally uh, asymptomatic. Uh, my wife didn't get it, and she lived right next to me for the whole 40 days. I mean, it's just not as simple as saying a mask kills somebody, and that's the implication from the left. I think the implication is that, as you and you even acknowledge this, that he didn't take it as seriously as others took it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, I actually sent a message or two saying, you know, he can take this more seriously and still hold with conviction and principle and logic his view of, I think, his president honestly just didn't want to take it too far the other way to cause panic. And I think that's the fine line. And when you've got a media that's treated Trump the way they have for three and a half years, what would you expect? Well, I would also say that the president treated uh, the media 
in kind, but I, don't, I guess we don't have to do which was the chicken and which was the egg. Okay, well, let me let me talk about the, the election itself. Um, I spoke to one Republican strategist right before the election, and he told me that he was going to vote for Trump not because he loved the president, although he did love the Supreme Court justices, but he felt that Joe Biden would be a captive of the Democrats' far left wing. Well, I think that I think that remains to be seen. I have a, a, a similar view, but I, I voted for Trump for policy reasons, whether it be uh, Operation Warp Speed or breakthroughs in the Mideast or his view of Afghanistan or his view of China. Uh, I did not vote for him and could not have voted for him if I were only considering his personality or his bedside manner. So it was a policy choice for me. And you'll remember from years ago, I'm sort of a policy wonk. I've proven I'm not all that good at the politics of it, but I had a pretty good record on the public policy side. So I don't think Trump losing was a bad thing. That might surprise you. I'm surprised that Trump did as well as he did. Me too. You know, 70 million votes to Biden's 70, 80 million. 74 million, right. When it, it's done counting, right, somewhere in that range. But I'm surprised he did as well as he, he, he did, given the, the, the spin and the, and the drift in the, in the media and the polling. But having said that, take a look at the rest of the election, which is really being ignored by the liberal media. First of all, picked up two net Republican governors, moving to 27 governors. Picked up New Hampshire legislature, went red, and... The majority of the other states' legislatures, which are, are red, didn't lose a one. And in fact, on top of that, picked up a new net 130-plus brand-new state legislators across the country. Let's go further. The Senate is tied, at least, and most likely will stay Republican uh, when the Georgia elections are over by one or two. But that the Senate could have been lost by three or four, the way things were everybody going. Everybody thought the Democrats were going to take control of the Senate. And right. everybody thought the Democrats were going to gain in the House. The Republicans have picked up 10 seats, and they could pick up more. Nobody saw that coming. The fact of the matter is, where's the blue wave? The Democrats got their dream in, in the fact that Trump is gone. But I do, think, I do think that's salient, Ken, because it shows the strength of the differences between the two parties. It shows the strength of the organizational effort waged by the national and state Republican apparatus. It shows that the public was, was not rejecting the politics of Donald Trump. They were rejecting Donald Trump, but they weren't rejecting his policies. And it didn't cost us seats in any level of government, city, county, state, or federal, Republicans gained during a presidential election. So I think, by and large, I'm not unhappy. I would certainly have liked to have seen Donald Trump be reelected, but it doesn't bother me near as much as it does some of my friends. And in fact, I think it's healthy to the extent that we're going to see an interesting two years ahead. If uh, Georgia delivers one or two Republicans, you're going to see the actual policy disputes quite more clearly in focus, and it'll be interesting to see how the media stands up to their responsibility to focus on them. But there's always a sense that given the tug from the left on Joe Biden that's already begun, you know, there could be some, you know, inter-party Democratic stuff that could hurt the, the Democrats as well. I think that's a wise observation, uh, Ken. I, I think that you end up with a, a much stronger left pulling pressure in the Democrat House caucus than than uh, 
was there before the election. So while the Republicans did well in the House and would be on course, I think, in two years to take back the majority with the seats that are targeted, it would seem that Pelosi will have a very hard time delivering a unanimous vote from her inner ranks in her majority. You know, you're talking about whether Omaha is changing or not, or the second congressional district is changing or or not. Let me go statewide. Um, Trump won about 58, 59 percent of the statewide vote, which is about what he got four years ago and which is about what Mitt Romney received four years before that. But but both Bushes received more than 60 percent of the vote each time they ran and Both Reagan and Nixon got more than 70 percent. I think my question is, you know, I don't think Nebraska is turning blue anytime soon. But are there? Po- no, I, I don't. No, I don't no. think it will be for, <laughs> no. for my lifetime. Anyway. Yeah. But are there political changes going on in the state, even if it's even, even if they're subtle? I, I think yes. The answer is yes to that, and that's the urbanization influence of the interstate and the larger urban areas that have been growing rapidly from uh, Omaha to going west to Lincoln, our state capital, to York and Grand Island and North Platte and Scotts Bluff. If you just follow the interstate to Wyoming and Colorado, there's been a huge increase in the population in those cities, not in our state. From the Kansas border to the South Dakota border, we're still quite rural, but the population has moved to the interstate. And so we're still about 2 million people in total, but the aggregation in the makes those counties larger and it makes the vote impact in those congressional districts different than it used to be. It's more it's more urban, it's less rural. You know, there are different ways how Nebraska Republicans have reacted to Biden's victory. Uh, ben Sass uh, congratulated him the day after he was elected, uh, he, the day after he was declared president-elect. Uh, but Governor Ricketts still hasn't congratulated him, and he actually waited till just the other day to say it's unlikely Trump will prevail in the fight. Uh, until then, he's stuck with the president. Where do you come down on in all this? What do you make you're of— a, you're, a, you're a keen observer of the politics of Nebraska. I take my hand off to you, Ken. Uh, it's an interesting subtlety. When you have uh, personalities like uh, our junior senator, Ben Sass and his motivations for the future, and stack that up against the prairie populism of Nebraska— this is uh, George Norris country. This is William Jennings Bryan country. This still is the farm labor Democrat prairie populism of La Follette coming out of Wisconsin, hitting Iowa, slamming into Nebraska and stopping with the unicameral legislature and the rural electric. And if you, that, that same sense of independence and that same sense of nonpartisanship or bipartisanship is still quite strong, regardless of whether one is a Republican or a Democrat. And so Ben Sass plays well to that. And he has uh, a lot of fish to fry, and he has strong convictions, and he has a clear future ambition and might have just thought that a swipe at the president would be pretty safe since he expected Trump to lose. You know, I don't know where, I don't know if it's safe. Even at this point, I don't know if it's safe to criticize the president. I know that when, like, for example, the governor of Ohio, uh, Mike DeWine, said that Biden won the state, Trump went crazy when um, when the Arizona governor certified yeah, Biden's yeah. win. He attacked he attacked Doug Ducey. He's attacking Republicans in Georgia. That seems 
That seems counterproductive to me. You know, I, I am not able to make an assessment. If you go back and look at history, it is not unusual for contests of the presidential election to take place right up until the Electoral College certification. What Trump is doing, again, is a style argument for some, I suppose. But in, but in terms of challenging ballot results and state results, I mean, the hanging Chad and, and uh, Gore v. Bush. I mean, and there was no media criticism of Al Gore challenging the results of Florida. None. So it's just, to me, uh, an, an angry environment that uh, maybe is a part of the reason why I say it may not be so bad that Donald Trump didn't win this one, not to say that he might not try to win another one. But but don't you think that the way he's doing it by by c- coming up, he's having Giuliani and Sidney Powell until she was dismissed from the team. But they're coming up with these these crazy concoctions about about g- Venezuela and Cuba and Mar and people from Neptune. His his attorney, his former attorney Michael Cohen, uh, said before the election, Trump is going to deny that he lost. He's going to say he won by millions of votes. He will say that it was fake. And from the beginning, he said, Trump has said that either I win or it's stolen. So he was never going to well, accept I, a loss. I, I, I find that uh, not an appropriate course of action if I were to be the one recommending that course of action. I will say that I think the Democrats proved that that tactic over time works. And I'll lay my case out, starting with the Steele dossier and the Russian hoax for three and a half years. I'm talking about the whole Russian uh, uh, impeachment uh, that led to the impeachment motions, that three and a half years of effort from the FISA warrant to the the Steele dossier, which everybody knows was forged and paid for by Clinton's folks, but it's never been acknowledged by the liberal media that that the root of the whole thing was false. Do we think that sending Rudy Giuliani to Ukraine to get dirt on Joe Biden? No, I'm just using the analogy. I'm just using the analogy of saying... That the, that the idea politically as a strategic approach to an objective is, like it or not, a discrediting or a rejection of something. You know, usually after a defeat, uh, a party will try to figure out what happened. Uh, in 1960, after Nixon lost, the party moved to the right. Uh, after Goldwater lost, uh, the party mo- tried to move back to the center. When Romney lost, there was this famous autopsy over what, what went wrong. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. What, what say you about the Republican Party? Does it move on beyond Trump, or does Trump control the party until he says otherwise? See, I don't think Trump controls the party. I think he's such a magnet, such a, a force for focus. Trump has this outsized personality and very definite views about government size of government, its reach, and its purpose. And he stood right up and said, this is what I think, and this is why I think that way. And while the rest of the world disagrees with me, that's where I am. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, especially in the media, that couldn't get a straight answer to a question like you just asked. The answer is the Republican Party, short of winning the presidency, Ken, did very well philosophically and in practical election terms, up and down the ballot all across the country. So I don't think this time there needs to be a reset. 
I was just reading something in National Review, and 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 so let me just read to you uh, what what it, what it said. It said you mean, that you mean the retired alumni of the Never Trumpers. <laughs> National Review, <laughs> National Review has become <laughs> liberals now. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable. But anyway, oh my God! I mean, I know. <laughs> Trump just retweeted that Nevada is setting up fake hospitals uh, that have never seen a single patient to exaggerate how severe the virus is. Michael Flynn, whom the president pardoned, has endorsed a call for Trump uh, to invoke limited martial law and suggested that the election be done all over again. Two lawyers who have been filing lawsuits on behalf of Trump, including Sidney Powell, told Georgia Republicans not to vote in the Senate runoffs until the state gets rid of Dominion voting machines. I mean, that sounds like madness to me. To me, what that is, is this disconnected but reported conduct by uh, Lone Rangers, by uh, untethered and non-Republican mainstream Republican National Committee kind of strategy. These people are outliers. And they've got a microphone, and the media loves it because they can turn it all back to criticize Trump. The pain will not have to be endured too much longer. Let me ask you a final question about Hal Dobb. I remember when you gave up your House seat way back in 1988 to run for the Senate. I actually actually expected you to get the appointment after Senator Zerinsky died, by the way. That was my prediction at the time. But do you think about that at all? I mean, I know we're talking about more than three decades ago, but... Well, that's a, it, uh, as I reflect on it very simply, I've, I've always believed, and it's a sincere statement, that when one door shuts, another one opens. And that's happened to me every step of the way in my life, Ken. And uh, while there were many that expected me to get that Senate nod, and I had a, uh incumbency and a record and a familiarity with the federal process. I'd prepared all my life to be I'd prepared all my life to serve in the Senate and uh, the opportunity was there. Um I lost the primary, you recall, by a thousand votes, but it was a matter of principle and uh I, I had my shot. Then I had a second shot when Jim Exon was uh, uh the incumbent uh running for re election. Yeah, he was hard to so, beat in ter- but they ended up getting the privilege of being mayor of my big city of Omaha, Nebraska, for two terms after I lost those Senate bids. So first, it proves that the public can appreciate someone who works hard and does a good job in public service, and that just because you lose an election doesn't mean you're done. And uh, then I went on after that, you might have noted, to be elected to to a six-year term on our University Board of Regents. So I've always had a, a, a good time and in uh, my public service. I've I've been rewarded by it. And I never looked back to regret or to second guess whether governor or made or didn't make the right decision. That was her decision. Hal Dobb served four terms in Congress and was later mayor of Omaha. Hal, um, first of all, I'm so glad that you're recovering from the virus. I know you and I will never see eye to eye on who's worse, the media or the president. (laughs) But I, it was wonderful having you on the program. Oh, I want to beg to differ. Uh, I, I think that that there's going to be a real useful catharsis and that the media, as a broad brush definition, is going to have second thoughts how critical or uh, probing uh, they will be without indicating clearly that they have a public policy bias 
towards big central government and the Democratic Party. They're going to have to uh, swing back to the middle. And so I'm pretty excited about that, too. I think there'll be a readjustment in the way the media covers this president. But they do have a respect for decency and integrity and honesty and, and, and reaction to personal cruelty. I mean, I think that was part of it as well. It could have well been. Um, it's just a point of view. And uh, obviously, uh, 74 million people, for whatever reason, thought that the results should have been different. Now we'll see if that has an impact on the thinking of this president-elect and of the press corps. Hal, stay well, and it was just great talking to you. Great talking to you, Ken. Thank you very much for the interview. It's time to reveal the answer and winner of our last trivia question, which was, who was the last appointed California senator who went on to win election to keep the seat? The answer, Thomas Kekel. Kekel, who was state controller at the time, was appointed by Governor Earl Warren in 1953 to replace Senator Richard Nixon, who was elected vice president. And the randomly selected winner is... Saif al Alawi of Glendale, Arizona. Saif wins the coveted political junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the political junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. David Dinkins, who died in November, made history in 1989 when he became New York City's first African-American mayor. He had a troubled term and was defeated in his bid for re-election by Rudy Giuliani. Since Dinkins left office 27 years ago, the city has had only white mayors. Charlie Rangel was elected to Congress in 1970, defeating longtime incumbent Adam Clayton Powell. Wrangell, in a district representing Harlem, went on to serve 46 years. When he retired after 2016, the district elected someone from the Dominican Republic. Dinkins and Wrangell were two members of the so-called Harlem Gang of Four, four men who elevated African-American voters and issues to the forefront of city politics. The other two were Percy Sutton, the attorney for Malcolm X, who spent 12 years as Manhattan Borough President before losing a bid for mayor, and Basil Patterson, who may have been the most important of all of them. Higher office may have eluded him, but he was instrumental in getting Sutton, Dinkins, and Wrangell elected to their respective positions. All but Wrangell are gone, and for the younger black politicians who are active today, they could be excused if the names of Wrangell, Sutton, Dinkins, and Patterson are not familiar. But once, they were giants. Carl McCall is a political giant as well. 
Aided by Percy Sutton, he served nearly six years as a state senator representing Harlem. He was elected twice as state controller, the first African-American to hold that position. And in 2002, he became the Democratic nominee for governor of New York, the first and only African-American to accomplish that. Carl McCall joins us now not only to talk about the late David Dinkins, but about what's happened to black politics in Manhattan and the city. Carl McCall, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. Ken, it's really good to be with you. Uh, And you picked a great topic. And, of course, to start off with a tribute to our friend uh, uh, David Dinkins, uh, quite a loss. Uh, In fact, over the last uh, two weeks, I've been in a number of programs. People want to pay tribute to David for his many accomplishments. I uh, was very fortunate not only to have known David as a friend and as a political colleague, but as a mentor and a big supporter. I mean, David helped me get elected. I met David back uh, at a point at which he had suffered a defeat. He suffered a lot of setbacks, but uh, they didn't hold him back. He always recovered. He really understood the power of elected office and the power of politics, and he worked very hard to encourage people to support uh, our political system. So he started registering voters, And that's where I met him, and we used to go out on Saturday mornings at different corners in Harlem and put up a little table and and register people to vote. And then the next opportunity came along. Percy Sutton retired. (laughs) David wanted to be borough president, and he ran, and he lost to a fellow by the name of Andrew Stein. And so he, four years later, he ran again, and he won, and he became the uh, the borough president. And from there, he went for the big prize to be uh, mayor. And that was a tough fight, tough fight. Well, let me me talk about that for a second, because um, I I remember, you look, in 1989, the city was not doing well. Racial animosity was at its Mm -hmm. peak. Uh, Crime was was just exorbitant. Crack was, you know, drugs were were, were the scourge of the city. When Ed Koch was, you know, kind of an in-your-face politician, having served three terms as mayor, Dickens was, you know, a kinder and gentler, as they said at the time. And that's what David offered to the city at a very troubled time. Uh, you were right about all of the, the myriad problems that, that we faced. Uh, but he took on Koch, who had been very popular, but was now identified with all of those problems and was also identified in terms of his lack of uh, any kind of connection with the, uh, with the black and brown communities of New York. So David won, but, you know, it was, a, it was a tough position to be mayor at that time, and there are a lot of things that he was not able to, to solve. Uh, the crime problem was one, however, that he made it. He did something that had a long-term payoff, and he didn't get credit for it. He really went out of his way to get legislation to provide new revenue to vastly uh, – uh, expand and, and to provide better training for the police force. And we ended up with a much larger, a much uh, better trained, much more sensitive police uh, presence in New York, and that began to bring the crime rate down, but it took a little time, and he didn't get credit. Another problem David had, of course, was meeting the expectations of black people. 
black people who came out and supported David, supported him very strongly, thought he was going to solve all problems overnight. <laughs> you know, I remember an example of that. One of the things that David did, he took a, a group of us to South Africa uh, soon after Nelson Mandela was elected president. I remember we had a dinner at uh, Nelson Mandela's house, and just after dinner, I just happened to walk out into the uh, garden outside, and David and Nelson Mandela was talking. And President Mandela said to David, you know, this is so difficult. He said, people want so much of me. He said, I got this letter from this lady today, and she said, Mr. Mandela, you've been out of jail for a year. Where's my house? And David said, I get letters like that every day. <laughs> and that's true. People expect, you know, immediate uh, uh, change and immediate benefits when, you know, we have a African-American in office. And that part of that, uh, the fact of that not being able to manage those expectations led to David's defeat when he ran for re-election because he didn't get the same turnout of black voters in his in his re-election that he got in his first election. Had he received the same turnout, he could have uh, beaten Giuliani. But, uh, you know, he was just faced with a myriad of problems. He did a lot of good things. Uh, he was really committed to our school system. In fact, he did something good not only for me but for my family. David appointed me to be the president of the New York City Board of Education and, uh, and worked with me and supported me in terms of making our schools more supportive of the total needs of students. When, when I was reading uh, Dinkins uh, obituaries, um, of course, there were, you know, so many references to his failures. They talked about the riots in Crown Heights, for example. But I think one of the problems, or maybe, maybe you could tell me if I'm wrong, but he was sandwiched between two mayors who were oversized politicians, Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani. And I think that in itself was hard to overcome. It was, but, but you know, Ed Koch was oversized, but at the same time, not terribly successful. I mean, he left the city in a mess. When he became, you know, David had to inherit his mess, and David just had difficulty, uh, you know, lifting the city up and, and to eliminate the serious problems that, that Koch left. And then Giuliani outsized, but, you know, he was, uh, he was uh, not a good mayor. He divided people. He only uh, provided attention to certain groups in the city completely. Uh, uh, during his tenure as mayor, I was the state controller. I was the highest elected African-American in the state. He would never even meet with me to talk about common issues and common problems and try to work together. I mean, he was, uh, well, we see what he, you know, how he's acting today on television. He was the earlier version of, of, of Donald Trump. So they were outsized, but they were not what you would call successful. Let me go back to the Gang of Four for a second. Once there was this, I don't know, thriving and growing black population in New York, and there was a thriving and growing group of African-American politicians, but that seems to have declined over the years. There's, there's been white mayors, there's been white Manhattan borough presidents. I guess the question is, 
what changed and why? Well, the demographics changed. Uh, uh, black folks, uh, like others, moved out of the city, like Harlem changed, because the black population in Harlem diminished. Harlem became gentrified. You go to Harlem today and you see almost as many white people <laughs> walking around Harlem as, as black people. So we didn't have the, the population base uh, in Harlem that uh, we had in the past. The fact that Charlie Rangel lost uh, his seat, rather, um, we couldn't hold on to his seat. We had a very good black candidate in terms of Keith Wright, an assemblyman, who tried to replace Charlie, but the numbers weren't there. There were more Dominicans and, and also Puerto Ricans and white people in the district. The black population of what had been the Harlem district was the smallest piece. And so we just didn't have the population base to elect another black congressman. It wasn't because there weren't good people, and it wasn't because people weren't interested, but we just didn't have the population base. But as the population base moved, look at Brooklyn today. Brooklyn, we have a black borough president. We have from Brooklyn a person who is the city public advocate, the second highest position in, in city government. We have a tremendous uh, – we have uh, two uh, black congresspeople in, in Brooklyn, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who someday will probably be the speaker of the, of the House, who is now the number three person in the House leadership. If he doesn't go into the Biden administration. Well, I, I doubt that's going to happen. I really doubt that. Uh, so the point is, maybe there's a shift away from Harlem, and then you have uh, Queens, where you have uh, Gregory Meeks, a very uh, influential congressman member, who was just elected chair of the uh, Foreign Relations uh, Committee of the House. So we're still doing well in terms of uh, black politicians in New York. It just is no longer centered in Harlem. Let me let, let me go back for a second to your run for governor in 2002 against against Pataki. Uh, you were the two-term state controller. You were the clear choice of the Democratic Party. You had a chance to make history. Then Andrew Cuomo decides he wants to be governor, and he starts he starts making unfounded charges about you, and the race gets very very nasty. I know in the past you've made it clear you'd rather not talk about this. I know Andrew Cuomo is everybody's favorite governor. Everybody's madly in love with him. And I know he appointed you chairman of the SUNY Board of Trustees. So I know all this, and I assume the bad blood is long gone. But, and you can see I'm not letting go of this, but... Go he, right ahead. Okay, his, his challenge to you had to be a big disappointment. Yeah, it was, no question. Because... Uh, it was folly on his part, but very damaging to me. Uh, what happened is uh, in 1982, uh, when we had a race, uh, when I was elected uh, 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 controller, uh, everybody else lost. Mario Cuomo. You mean 94? I'm sorry, 94. That's right. In 94, we, they, everybody lost. We lost the attorney general's race. We lost the governor, governor's race, uh, lieutenant governor race. And I was the only Democrat at holding a statewide position for the next four years. 
and I worked very hard during that time uh, to build up the party. I had to go all over the state speaking and, and, and raising money and helping Democratic uh, uh, elected officials and Democratic uh, community groups. And uh, so I had a clear lock on the Democratic Party, but Andrew Cuomo came back from uh, Washington, where he had been the uh, secretary of HUD and uh, had worked for the Clintons. And that was an interesting thing because the Clintons were very torn. Uh, they really were leaning toward me, but Andrew had worked, was working for the president. But eventually the Clintons, even the Clintons came around and supported me. So I, I you know, I won that race. But in the process, it was very costly. I had, had to spend so much money there. I didn't have enough money left over for the general election. And uh, it was just a very big setback. In fact, Andrew Cuomo, uh, I was so far ahead by the, by the election that Andrew actually dropped out of the race in the last week, you know. Well, he, he, he dropped out because he was definitely going to lose. He was going to lose, that's right. So, yes, it was a disappointment, and, uh, you know, but, you know, I'm not going to hold that kind of grudge forever. I mean, it's just that's uh, what happens in politics, and I decided to move on and do other things, and, yes, Andrew has been helpful to me in terms of uh, the fact that he appointed me to a very good position that I've held for the last 12 years. Uh, I retired last year, you know, as chair of the State University of New York, and and uh, and he did something else for me that I thought was very nice. Uh, we have a very impressive building, which is the headquarters of the State University of New York in Albany, and he named that building for me. My name is on that building, only major you know, public building in the state capitol named for a black person. So, you know, you, you have these setbacks, and that's what happens in politics. And you know what they say about politics. You have, there are no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. We only have permanent interests. And Andrew is interested in the same kinds of things I'm interested in, in terms of good government, in terms of supporting education, supporting social services, and economic development for black people. So as long as he is committed to those things, I am going to support him. When someone... When someone like a David Dinkins leaves us, uh, just as it was with Basil Patterson and, and Percy Sutton, a, a big part of the history of black politics dies as well. Does, does that make you nostalgic? Does it make you sad? You know, I was thinking as I, we were talking, it reminds me when the Yankees suddenly got old and everyone was retiring. It's like the end of an era. It is, but, but as, as one era ends, a new one begins. Look, when you mention the Gang of Four, Percy and Charlie and Basil uh, and David, but before that, there was Adam Powell and there was Ray Jones, the Fox. I mean, they, they, these, were, these were legendary figures, too. And when their era ended, the Gang of Four era came about. And now we have a new era. We now have an era with Hakeem Jeffries and Gregory Meeks and uh, uh, other you know, people who are coming along to be the kind of, you know, iconic figures that we've had in the past. So, uh, you know, I, I don't regret the end of an era. I, I think we really focus on 
how do we make the next era even better? Let me let me ask you one last question. Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly supported by the black community, takes office in about, about uh, in a month and a half. And yet Donald Trump did considerably better with African-Americans than he did four years ago. What does that say about the black community in this country? Because to me, that would be counterintuitive. It's diverse. That's what you say about it. There are some people who have different kinds of interests. There are some people, particularly black men, who felt that uh, Trump was speaking to them in terms of employment opportunities uh, that they had not seen in the past, and they found that attractive. And they felt that, you know, why should we all support Democrats? Why don't we sort of, you know, try to to get something from the other side. So I understand that, but it's, you know, I think we still had the overwhelming number of blacks still did, in fact, support Biden. The other thing that Trump did, I don't know how permanent it will be, he said, is, you know, he support, provided a lot of support for historically black colleges. Well, he probably has. I mean, that's helpful to some people. So there are some things he did, and people simply wanted to uh, try something different. So I don't regret that. When you consider, though, that we still had a larger turnout of black people than probably ever before, the majority of that record turnout did, in fact, vote for Joe Biden. Carl McCall is a former two-term controller of New York, the first African-American elected to statewide office. In 2002, he became the state's first and only African-American candidate for governor, and more recently he served nearly eight years as chairman of the State University of New York Board of Trustees. Carl McCall, it was an absolute honor having you on the program. It was my pleasure. Really nice to talk to you, and, uh, uh, and it's so good to have your voice uh, speaking to people and communities throughout this country. We need more uh, people telling the truth and holding everybody accountable. So thanks for what you do. I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go back to the city. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkies made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. And remember, you should even wear a mask while listening to the show. I'll see you soon. <laughs>